Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to hamstring injury experts Josh Ruddy, Ryan Timmins, and Jack Hickey. Thanks for tuning in to episode 248 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So a little initiative that I want to get going is to every month release a round table focused on one specific area and get three experts from that area to discuss. So first up was or is in this episode and is focused around hamstring injuries. So obviously still a huge part of of what people do uh, day to day in terms of practitioners, whether it's rehab, rehabbing uh, hamstring injuries or looking to prevent them in team sports and individual sports. So I thought it was a great one to start with given how much um, how much airtime it gets and how much people are thinking about this area. So three experts. So we've got Josh Ruddy talking about um, hamstring injury prediction and we've got Ryan Timmins talking about um, reducing the risk of hamstring injury and then we've got Jack as per a few weeks ago on the podcast discussing uh, the rehabilitation sh- uh, of hamstring injury should a hamstring injury actually happen so I was really excited to get these on rightly so because they're three great guys and um, they give so much information in this episode for you to take away so I loved this episode it's great to have multiple people on at the same time listen to them bounce off each other and uh, ask each other questions which I think is really uh, a really nice touch so it'll be a great episode which I'm sure you'll really really enjoy this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. 
So without further ado, over to the episode with Josh Ruddy, Ryan Timmins, and Jack Hickey. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning or this evening for, for them guys, uh, I am delighted to welcome Jack Hickey, Ryan Timmins, and Josh Ruddy for a four-way podcast, four-way roundtable hamstring-related podcast. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for coming on, guys. Thanks for having us, Rob. Good to be here, Rob. Anyone that doesn't know who you guys are, we're going to go in order of what the uh, the order we're going to discuss things in. So we're going to come to Josh first. I'll let you go, Josh. And just a bit of background on yourself, what you're currently doing, um, and then we'll get into the um, the rest of the guys and then and then get into the meat of the conversation. So over to you, Josh. Yeah, no worries, Rob. Um, my background probably isn't as extensive or interesting as Ryan's uh, and Jack's, but um, essentially, I completed my undergraduate degree in uh, exercise science here at ACU in Melbourne. Um, that was a few years ago now, I think. Um, and then I was lucky enough to sort of do my honours under the supervision of Dr. David Opar. So that was looking at running loads and hamstring injury risk in uh, elite Australian footballers. Um, I then took a year off and completed a couple of different internships, um, did some teaching and some research assistant work, which was pretty valuable, and then decided to do my PhD. So I'm currently two years uh, into my PhD, and uh, I've sort of been lucky enough to do that in conjunction with or sort of embedded with one of the AFL teams uh, down here in Melbourne. Um, so that's been a, a really fantastic experience. So yeah, as I said, I'm two years into that and the end is in sight, uh, touch wood. Hopefully within the next 12 months, I will have finished that. Excellent. Over to you, Ray. Um, so I've actually been here at ACU as an employee since 2015, uh, lecturing and doing research. Prior to that, I actually undertook my honours uh, up in Queensland under the supervision of Dr. Anthony Shield, now Associate Professor Anthony Shield, um, and obviously followed finishing that moved to Melbourne to do my PhD underneath David Opar. Uh, finished PhD, managed to, to get a gig here at the university and, and now find myself uh, supervising Josh and a few other PhD students here at the university, as well as still keeping some work in the background um, with a local elite soccer program here in Australia at Melbourne Victory. So been in the elite program in Australia, working at the club level for about 10 years. Um, so hopefully to keep that rolling around in the background, but still churning out some research to help some people out. And all that fitting around your FIFA commitments as well? Absolutely. We've got to keep that <laughs> the Sunday afternoon FIFA sessions going. Good stuff. And over to you, Jack. Yeah, mate. Um, so, yeah, my background uh, is as a clinical exercise physiologist, so working in rehabilitation, uh, specifically musculoskeletal and, and sports injury rehab, um, and then came here to ACU in 2015 to start my PhD. So my PhD, um, like the other boys, was under David Opar's supervision uh, and focused on hamstring injury rehabilitation. Um, and since completing that last year um, of been very fortunate to be employed here in a full-time academic role, uh, so lecturing in musculoskeletal and sports injury rehab, um, as well as continuing on with some research uh, and also some clinical work here as well. So uh, a bit of a mix for me, which is which is nice. So uh, yeah, 
Excellent. So just coming back to you, right? Obviously, you've been you've been around the longest in terms of uh, ACU. Did you think when you got involved that you would be involved in in in, in projects that have got such um, kind of gone almost mainstream and and got so much publicity in terms of the hamstring injury stuff? Uh, not at all. No, I think um, the biggest thing that always lingers in the back of my mind. I'm sure a lot of the other researchers around the world is um, the risk of finding nothing. So you undertake research and there's always the worrying factor you might come out with um, with nothing and have to try and piece it all together. So, yeah, we're, uh, the whole way through that, we, we try to um, talk about our results to people and, and, and explain that to them and we try to grow our projects of research around what industry actually requires or questions they might actually have. So I think in turn that then organically grows interest from the industry and then actually makes that impact. So a lot of our research projects have come from those conversations to actually allow us to go, okay, well, what are you guys interested in? How can we address that from a research perspective? So, yeah, you don't, you don't picture it at the start of the day, but um, definitely learn a lot of lessons along the way on how to actually get that research to, to make an impact at the, at the coalface. Superb. So the way we're going to structure it, as you guys know, we're going to go Josh first, looking at prediction, and then we're going to come back to you, Ryan, um, and reducing hamstring injury risk, and then finally with Jack uh, looking at hamstring rehab. But we'll, that'll all get mixed in between. So if any of you guys want to jump in and add something to what the other one's saying, feel free, and we'll, we'll then let it roll. But coming back to you, Josh, predicting hamstring injuries. Just want to give us a bit of an overview of your work in that area, then we can we can use that as a bit of a jumping off point and we can delve a bit deeper. Yeah, fair enough, Rob. So as I mentioned, my honours was sort of looking at um, high-speed running loads and how that influences the risk um, of hamstring injury in uh, sort of elite Australian footballers. Um, interestingly, that sort of transitioned into my PhD work, work which is not so much specific to um, hamstring injury, but sort of general lower limb soft tissue injury. Um, and there was a couple of different reasons for that. I think the main one was, as people in this area of research will know, that the number one limitation is the amount of data that we have available to us. Um, so sort of researching that, that individual or that one specific pathology can be quite difficult. Um, obviously, there's the you know there's a number of or the the injury rate in, in terms of hamstring injuries in the AFL is is quite high. But and we decided to focus on sort of general lower limb soft tissue injuries as kind of um, allow us to um, you know to have more more of those injuries available to us and increase the amount of data that we have. Um, so yeah, essentially, I suppose getting back on topic, my PhD is really looking at identifying injury risk using the data that we have available to us. Um, so all those different types of data that are routinely collected um, in that environment in at an AFL club, um, how can we sort of utilise that data and harness that data to better identify athletes that are at an increased risk um, of injury? Excellent. So in terms of your, um, just, just moving on from that, links to high-speed running, I just want to give us a bit of an overview of the, some of the work that you've done in that area, um, and so just to try to make it as practical as possible for people um, and, and give hopefully something to, to take away from that. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose um, 
high speed running, but also just workload in general is um, it's quite a, a sort of prominent topic at the moment. Um, sort of in my honest degree, what we looked at was just whether the amount of sort of week to week variation in high speed running uh, increased or decreased the risk of hamstring injury. Um, and we took a pretty basic approach to that uh, and we sort of observed that, you know, large weekly changes in high-speed running loads um, sort of increase uh, the risk of injury, uh, of hamstring injury, I should say, um, which I suppose has since then sort of been supported by a number of different um, studies as well. Um, but I think really uh, I was talking to the guys about this before, but in terms of the risk factors that, that are researched in relation to hamstring injury, um, you know, we know that a number of different risk factors exist, but I think workload is the one thing that we measure on a daily basis. And it's also the one thing that we can modify um, quite easily sort of on that daily basis. So um, I think it's a really important one. And to be honest, I think, uh, you know, we need a lot more research in regards to how workload interacts with all those other different risk factors um, before we can start making really meaningful inferences um, from workload or from high-speed running data, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. So just, just taking it back one step, in terms of risk factors, just um, dumb, it, dumb it down for, for my simple brain. Just give it a bit of a, an overview of them risk factors that you mentioned in terms of hamstring injury risk. Yeah, so I suppose probably two of the most commonly identified risk factors for hamstring strain injury uh, a history of hamstring strain injury, um, as well as increasing age. So we know that they're non-modifiable. We can't really do much to change them. But what we also know is that um, other modifiable risk factors sort of, I suppose, moderate the impact of those non-modifiable risk factors. So they're really important to kind of measure and to consider. Uh, but it's also important to remember that we, we really can't do anything about them. Um, so that's why we tend to focus on the more modifiable risk factors. And in that category, um, we have Ryan's work looking at biceps femoris long head fascicle lengths. Um, we also have sort of some of uh, Dr. David Opars and, and Dr. Tony Shields' early work looking at uh, low levels of eccentric hamstring strength and how that sort of influences um, the risk of injury. And obviously more recently, there's been a lot of research regarding uh, workload not so much specific to hamstring injury, but just sort of general lower limb soft tissue injury. Uh, but as I said, I think workload's a really important one um, that we need to consider, in, in particular high-speed running. So in terms of that week-to-week -week variation of high-speed running, is there any kind of recommendations from the research that people could take away and implement in their week-to-week -week planning? Yeah, it's a good point, Rob. I suppose um, in, in my honest degree, I'm... I'm going to have to think back and think about some of the numbers that we had. Um, but it was approximately sort of anything over, in terms of a week-to-week -week change or a week-to-week -week variation. Um, in, in that particular study, we considered high-speed running to be distance covered above 24 kilometres per hour. Um, and if in one week you did more than 200 metres, I think, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was in that ballpark, um, more than 200 metres uh, than what you did the previous week, that increased your risk. I think it was um, oh, something like twofold. Um, so it sort of doubled your risk of injury. Um, 
I suppose this brings me to a really important point, though. It's these kind of numbers that we we talk about these magic numbers that really fit, um, or they can really guide practitioners. But it's really important to consider and to remember that the sort of numbers that are reported in research uh, and in particular studies are actually really specific to the cohort from what they're derived. So we talk about these optimal thresholds or these optimal cut points. Um, and for example, I, I just gave one there. Um, and it's really important to consider that these optimal cut points are really only optimal um, from the particular cohort that they're derived. So they're actually derived by looking at the injury rates above or below specific thresholds. Um, and once it's sort of determined, you then actually retrospectively apply that cut point to the same cohort, if that makes sense. Um, so it's almost like perfectly fit to that cohort might not necessarily be relevant when you're talking about other cohorts. Um, so they're really there to act as a guide. I think sometimes people get too caught up in, um, you know, those numbers being sort of hard and fast rules, for example, with the, the eccentric hamstring strength stuff. Um, you know, you need to be above 256 newtons uh, sort of at the start of pre-season or you're going to get injured. I think people can really get caught up in those optimal cut points um, when really they're just there to act as a guide. Is that, just bringing Ryan into the mix now, is that something that you found? I mean, I know there is, like uh, like Josh mentioned, the, the magic numbers. Do people hold them too strongly because it's written down in a paper, like that's what we're going to work to? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's uh, for us as, as researchers nowadays as well and even the, the journal articles themselves trying to publish as much information condensed into 3,000 words or the infographics that we get whilst they're amazing it's just trying to deliver a simple message um, straight away that can be consumed really easily. But as Josh mentioned, there's so much that goes into those measures and so much that goes into the construction of that message that to break it down into three pages or into a pretty picture sometimes loses a lot of that context. I definitely think um, from what we, we, we've seen with a lot of the I guess the screening and monitoring of athlete risk is that people go, okay, well, I'm at this level, so therefore my risk is going to be greater. Well, no, not really. It just shows that there's maybe something we need to address to do that. And some people try and find the golden bullet and that you know, the one thing that's going to help them reduce everything and reduce the risk of being injured. Where in reality, it is so many different factors that do contribute to it. And um, yeah, so I think, I think there is a bit of a, a reliance on a quick, simple message to try and get uh, a nice, easy answer to say, if I do this, my risk will be less. But again, it's probably not as simple as that and it's probably a bit more complex with a whole range of measures as well. How do you, as researchers, and feel free anyone to jump in here, how do you guys make that clear or try to make that clear that, yes, this is a number that we found in this cohort, but in your cohort that may be different? Yeah, it's a really good question, Rob. I think um, it sort of comes down to to education as well. I think it's really important to educate the people that are actually consuming this research on what these statistics actually mean um, and how to interpret them. So one thing that I've sort of found um, is that, you know, there seems to be, not, and this is very uh, general, but people seem to really, 
sometimes misinterpret what a relative risk means or what an odds ratio means. Um, And so I think really developing an understanding uh, when it comes to these different metrics that are often reported is a a big step in the right direction to, you know, um, effectively and efficiently consuming this research and not misinterpreting um, what what researchers are saying. Mm -hmm. Cool. So just going back to the um, just going back to Josh, come back to the, the first point, uh, and just running, having a little quick look through your research. Predictive modeling. Give us a bit of a um, an overview of, of that term and what what that actually means, and, and some of the from some of the research that you've done. Yeah, absolutely, Rob. I think I'm still trying to figure that out myself. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a pretty broad term. Um, I suppose predictive modelling, there's a number of different sort of elements or facets that kind of fit under that umbrella term. Um, But really what it is, uh, as I understand it, is um, taking some data and identifying different patterns um, that occur within that data and then applying what you've learned from that, uh, you know, initial data set to a new data set. Um, And really predictive modelling, the aim is to predict specific outcomes at an individual level. And I think that's where predictive modelling is sort of different from, you know, some of the other research that's published that sort of looks at associations at a group level. Um, You know, association can sort of tell us or or can provide us information about injury risk at that group level, um, but it's really not going to allow us to predict those specific outcomes at an individual level. And that's where predictive modelling sort of fits in but I suppose it's, it's an interesting um, kind of area because in reality I suppose in, in practice we don't really want to predict injuries what we want to do is identify risk we want to mitigate risk and we want to prevent those injuries from ever occurring so you know if, if your best player goes down with a hamstring injury and you go up to the coach and say hey coach I actually predicted that injury um, that's probably going to be your last day on the job because um, you don't want to have to you don't want that injury to be there to predict. You want to prevent it from occurring. Um, And so that's where predictive modelling is kind of interesting. You know, if you predict all these injuries, you you know, you might feel successful in having done that. Um, But really, in practice, the way predictive modelling should be applied um, is, as I said, to identify risk and, and mitigate risk so that you have no injuries to predict. I've spoken to a lot of people, especially in the in the role that I had at Catapult, who'd gone through this process of trying to, like you say, predict injuries. Is this something that a lot of people go down the like the unbelievable rabbit hole that it is to try to be able to do that in their own setting? And is that even like mildly possible? Yeah, absolutely. Another good question. Um, look, it's a pretty sort of a complex question, but I suppose that my simple answer would be no. At this point in time, we can't um, predict injuries with certainty. Um, and, and, you know, I think one day we might get to the point where we can do that. Um, but I think, yeah, as I said, we're a little, little bit uh, off that at the moment. Um, but, yeah, some people can get really caught up in the predictive modelling of injuries and I think they sort of lose sight of what a particular type of data or a particular metric actually means. Um, but, yeah, I, yeah, definitely people can get caught up in, in predictive modelling and I think this machine learning has sort of been this big buzz term that's been thrown around a lot recently and I'm certainly guilty of that. 
Um, but I think what people don't understand is that true machine learning, where we actually um, sort of allow a computer to, to learn and identify uh, different patterns from a data set, um, that actually requires truly big data. And unfortunately, a couple of seasons worth of GPS data and some injury rates uh, doesn't necessarily constitute big data. Um, so I think, you know, we're a long way off really being able to effectively apply machine learning and predictive modelling strategies um, in the sports injury sphere. Cool. Moving on to you, Ray. And coming back to try to, to, to dumb it down for uh, the simpletons like myself, uh, Josh has mentioned uh, fascicle length, and that's obviously something that uh, you've become horrendously familiar with. Do you just want to give us a bit of an overview of the, the kind of basics? Now, I've, no, I've listed a, a couple of terms, fascicle length, penation angle, muscle thickness, which I came across in a quick um, review of your, of your research before this. Do you just want to give us a bit of an overview of them three terms, and then we can look into more depth about reducing hamstring injury risk as, um, as Josh has set the platform perfectly for us? Yeah, so the basis of my PhD and the majority of my research so far, as you mentioned, has been around the impact that muscle architecture may have in modifying the risk of future injury um, and also having a subsequent um, adaptation or maladaptation after being injured itself. So that's been focusing around three main variables, which are muscle thickness, penation angle and fasciline. So with the method we use, which is two-dimensional ultrasound, uh, we can take a picture of a part of the muscle. So we use the biceps femoris long head because that was the main question for us being a hamstring injury group. What, what kind of structural characteristics within the biceps femoris long head, the most commonly injured muscle, may have a role in future injuries? So our muscle thickness kind of tells you itself. It's, it's the name, it's, it's the size of the muscle that we get from that two-dimensional image. Our penation angle is where the, the fibre is the angle at which they actually insert into um, the aponeurosis, so basically the base of the muscle. And then our fascicle length is basically a – our fascicles themselves are just a, a bundle of muscle fibres. And so when we look at fascicle length, we look at – estimating it from a measure using thickness, penation angle, and a bit of trigonometry to figure out how, how long our fascicles are. So in short, I guess the theoretical concept behind why we thought fascicle length was interesting was there was a few um, animal study models back in the day looking at uh, sarcomere series and how, how many sarcomeres in series may actually modify the amount of strain uh, how we can actually change that with uh, running downhill in rats or running uphill in rats and actually looking at if we had more sarcomeres in series, are we potentially hypothetically able to withstand the effects of large amounts of eccentric damage? And so things such as repetitive sprinting, uh, kicking, changing direction and those kind of things. And so going back to what fascicle length is, is we assume that by having a longer fascicle, that we actually have more sarcomeres in series, which are our smaller functional units of muscles. If we have more sarcomeres in series, then in theory, we would then have the better ability to withstand repeated eccentric contractions or, or muscle damage. And as a result, hopefully have a better buffer against that risk of injury. 
So in terms of the effect of eccentric training, which again is obviously something you're you're familiar with, very familiar with, what effect does that have um, on fascicle length? And I, I'd be interested to, to hear as well, obviously, the, the, the volume of that um, eccentric training as well. How does the volume and uh, intensity affect that? Yeah, yeah. So we... And not just us looking at from a from a fascicle length measure. We actually seen, um, I said back to those rat models. They made a bunch of rats might run uphill or downhill, and they looked at the actual increase in sarcomeres in series. Or we'd assume fascicle length increases. Um, we can't do that in humans because we can't really cut someone open and look at their sarcomeres because we have to kill them to do so. Um, probably very hard to do. So we we assume sarcomeres in series increase with eccentric training. Uh, so if we have that ability to do eccentric training, whether it is a, a Nordic hamstring exercise, whether it is a, you know, a K-box variation of a, a hamstring two-up, one-down lift or something along those lines, where we have the ability to increase the eccentric overload in the hamstrings, then in theory we would increase muscle fascicle length by adding more sarcomeres in series. That allows us to withstand the risk of injury. I would not withstand risk giving you what moderate that effect anyway. And I guess come back to your to your volume stuff. We know definitely from definitely from the, the Nordic hamstring exercise perspective, we've looked at how we can implement lower volume interventions and whether there are differing adaptations to higher volume interventions. And that's one of the biggest things with the Nordic is that whilst it's a, a great exercise and you know, there's two studies that have shown you, know, you do the Nordics with this certain training volume, which is much higher than we'd hope, you actually reduce the incident of injury. So why is not everyone doing it? Because the volume prescribed is quite high. So we went, okay, same. As we mentioned earlier, a lot of the research we do comes from actually having conversations with sporting organisations and we go, okay, how long do you have with these guys in pre-season? Okay, we have two weeks, let's give them a decent dose in a two-week period, but then do we just manage that with lower volumes? And we can actually maintain those adaptations that we see after a two-week preseason with one session, two sets of four Nordics, but done at a really high intensity. That kind of comes back to your whole balance between volume and intensity when prescribing any type of exercise. You can't go 100% all day, every day. You've obviously got to moderate that as you go. So... Um, we've definitely seen that with lower volume Nordic hamstring training interventions, we can promote similar fascicle length adaptations and similar strength adaptations as we did if we did a massive high volume training intervention as well. So for us, you know, whilst that, that data doesn't directly say we can reduce the risk of injury because we didn't look at that, we can say that the adaptations we see are actually quite <coughs> beneficial. We make people stronger you know, we can do one session compared to three. We can do 500 or less repetitions and still get the same architecture and the same strength adaptations. So, um, you know, we still need to do a big RCT to figure out if that actually reduces the risk of injury. Um, but we know that it has some pretty favourable adaptations. Just need to train hard, really. So was that in relatively strong athletes? And how does that compare to guys that – do guys have to build that – volume up first before that that lower volume becomes more effective or just yeah so that's a that's a downside of a lot of our kind of uh proof of concept work has really been just in me josh joel 25 people around the university that 
are willing to hang out with us for a couple of days a week. Most of them are recreationally active, but yeah, they're not not elite guys. So if we look in elite level athletes, obviously their ceiling is much closer to where they are every day. So their ability to adapt is, is a little bit limited. So ideally for us, um, we want to start to try and do some interventions within those environments. And we've started to do that now with a couple of our nice AFL clubs around the corner that have allowed us to take over the hamstring program and chuck in a couple of specific exercises within them elite programs. We have seen with lower volume eccentric Nordic exercises in a, an elite AFL population that we control. So we, we've been able to control every single part of the hamstring program. So the only hamstring specific exercise they do in the gym is a Nordic or we've chosen to do some isometric stuff as well to, to just see what happens there. But with a Nordic intervention, two sets of four twice a week for them because they wanted to do a little bit more in pre-season, we saw some good favourable adaptations in fast length and some good favourable adaptations in strength in an elite cohort. So we're starting to build a base in that elite environment. But, yeah, so a lot of the background work for us was to try and see can we change these things in normal people? If so, let's try and change them in the elite crew and we're starting to break into that now. Cool. So when it comes to asymmetries, now I'm going to come to you, Jack, in a minute on the on the rehab side of things and the focus on um, reducing the asymmetries. But in terms of reducing hamstring injury risk in the first place, Ryan, what focus should potential practitioners be have on um, on reducing the asymmetries, and what effect does that have on hamstring injury risk? Yep. So I guess the biggest thing for us, we haven't really seen. Uh, many magical numbers from a percentage term uh, in regards to asymmetries. We have um, seen, you know, in, in rugby union players who are typically much stronger than your soccer players or even in Australia some of your AFL players because they're much bigger humans. Uh, so they have ability to, to adapt much better than the soccer players do. So they tend to be quite strong. And their biggest issue tends to be when they're in balance is a about 15% or greater, their risk of injury or risk of future injury may may double. So with those stronger athletes, once their imbalance kind of crosses 15% and above, their risk of injury seems to seems to double. Now, for us in those that aren't elite rugby union players and don't have the ability to, to be really, really strong, the best part to look at trying to address risk of injury is just to try and improve the level of strength first. And so we see it as kind of a two-part process. If you're weak, get strong. If you're strong, stay symmetrical. And then if that symmetry increases above 15% and whether those guys have a history of ACL injury or traumatic knee injury, then as a result, that restricts how much they can adapt in that bad leg, then trying to correct that using other alternatives. So whilst whilst asymmetry isn't the be-all and end-all, I think once you're strong, trying to main, maintain that symmetry within that 15% uh, definitely holds you in good stead, but ideally just get strong first and then address the symmetry as you go. So when, when does the influence of the asymmetry become greater for the guys that are weaker? Or the guy, as you get stronger, does the... Um, asymmetry become more of a potential problem? Yeah, so we normally typically see it in the really strong guys and they're, for us, not really strong. So, you know, all of us here can 
do a nautic over 450 newtons and that's typically where we see that that risk increasing so around about 450 newtons so um again if you look at your typical soccer player i know in australia anyway um whilst the the concept's getting greater our our average within the a league our you know, elite version of the premier league we had an average of about 305 newtons across 180 athletes so that's quite low from an average strength perspective um yeah to give that some context the afl guys now no one really pulls below 300 and it's very rare that you get someone below 350 so they're quite strong individuals um and i guess yeah so that's the thing if you try and get guys strong um and then if they're around about 450 then that asymmetry around around about 450 newton starts from a statistic point of view starts to create issues but you know as we mentioned if they've got chronic bad histories or traumatic issues with the knee um, then trying to address that earlier than later will definitely hold you in good stead moving forward anyway so, so Jack, in terms of the rehab side of things, how much of a, an influence is looking at the asymmetries as part of your uh, the rehab? Uh, what, what's the focus for you on, on asymmetries? Yeah, I think asymmetries is one that you do tend to look at a bit in rehab just because you've got an, an individual, an athlete or, or otherwise, who comes in with an injury and you may not have any, very rarely have any previous data on that individual. Um, so to benchmark their rehabilitation, you can obviously use their contralateral uninjured limb um, as somewhat of a benchmark. So for sure, we try to close those gaps with asymmetry throughout the rehabilitation process. But one thing that we make abundantly clear to those guys and girls is when you're rehabilitating an injury, yes, we want to close asymmetries, but we certainly don't want to make your uninjured limb any weaker. It's obviously about making the athlete stronger and more robust in, in all areas. So um, we're not particularly hung up or concerned with asymmetries when they exist. Um, as Ryan said, that sort of 15% number is something that we, we sometimes use as just a general guide. Um, but it obviously you need to factor in the injury history. So Ryan mentioned the issue with prior traumatic knee injuries, particularly ACL injuries and especially if they've had a hamstring graft to repair that ACL, um, their knee flexor strength is obviously going to be um, impacted by that and, you know, whether they've had that on their currently hamstrung injured leg or their other leg, that's going to influence all of those things. So you can sometimes get too caught up in, in the numbers from either an absolute or an asymmetry point of view. Um, and, again, our approach is probably to keep it simple and obviously we want to just try to make our – um, injured individuals as robust and strong as possible. Um, and I think just one other point then on the asymmetries in rehab is that the way that you, I suppose, uh, term an asymmetry, is it compared to the contralateral uninjured limb at the time of testing or is it compared to the contralateral uninjured limb maybe at baseline when they started their rehab intervention? Um, I know when we have uh, guys and girls rehab with us, we certainly are training both their injured and their uninjured limbs because, you know, they may be at risk of injury in their other side as well. So um, we don't want to necessarily be comparing to the uninjured limb at the time of testing the whole way throughout because, um, as I know Rod Whiteley puts it, you're sort of shifting the goalposts. So if you can have a, um, a mark of, I guess, control or baseline at the start of rehabilitation from your uninjured limb and then you can look at your... Uh, injured leg as a percentage of that throughout the rehab process. That, that can be one way of, um, I suppose, getting around some of those issues. 
so measuring so using that injured leg uh, at the start of rehab as the benchmark rather than after six weeks for example because you're training that uninjured leg as well is that right yeah yeah absolutely and um i think it's something to be aware of and and there's even some data now in in the acl world where um you know we're seeing that perhaps there's um those who have a limb symmetry index that's apparently quite high by the end of rehabilitation because you might be rehabbing for 12 18 months um, and if you are comparing to the intermediate baseline in that population, that might have some issues because you've got someone who has a limb symmetry index of 120%, so that looks great, but that's because, you know, over that 12-month period, they've probably actually got their other leg stronger as well. So depending on the injury and the length of time in rehab, you might sort of change your approach a little bit. From a hamstring point of view, when you've got a two- to three-week injury, um, you know, it, it's probably okay to look at that uh, baseline comparison at least as a bit of a control. Um, but as I said, there's no perfect way of doing it. And I think um, at the end of the day, we're just wanting to get the athlete stronger, faster, um, you know, if it's in terms of muscle architecture, longer um, as we can, you know, probably in the context of hamstring injury in a pretty tight time frame. Mm-hmm. Just coming back to you, Ryan, in terms of, and, and, and Nordics seem to um, still bring this uh, controversy in terms of the, the adoption in, in professional sport, but it's, what what alternatives have practitioners got if uh, Nordics are an issue in terms of the compliance side of things, uh, and and from a research point of view as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know we sometimes get painted with the, uh, the Nordic uh, bias brush, and I think sometimes um, that comes from a, a, a you know, lack of evidence from a level one perspective, saying okay. This is how you reduce the risk of injury because sometimes in theory it's very hard to chuck a 45-degree Roman chair in a football club and get 40 blokes to do you know, two up, one down, hamstring exercises on one piece of equipment when it's much easier to get 40 blokes to do Nordics on the side of a pitch when it's pouring rain. So that sometimes creates some considerations. So if you're trying to do a, a whole squad-wide um intervention what equipment do you have available to you how do you actually implement that and is it going to piss off the coach in the process so um try and understand those questions create hard a hard process from a research point of view um from a do we actually reduce the risk of injury or reduce the rate of injury so then we take a step backwards and go okay if we can't implement this at a big cohort level can we just get a bunch of guys do an intervention and see if stuff changes and then indirectly go, if we make them stronger, that's beneficial. And we do have a good bunch of evidence now to suggest that some of the work that Matty Bourne did during his PhD, that undertaking um, a 45-degree Roman chair intervention, so that kind of um, longer-length hip-dominant exercise actually produced some pretty favourable strength architectural and also some massive volume changes in the biceps femoris long head as well. Um, which is quite a useful exercise. Um, you might have some guys that get a, that might have some spine issues, so then obviously trying to find other variations for them. Um, we found with, as we mentioned before, that, that elite AFL cohort that undertaking some isometric exercise in addition to some really well-prescribed high-velocity um, sprinting intervention actually allows you to improve strength and fast length as well. So when I say high-velocity, you're looking at at least trying to get eight to ten efforts a week over 95% of their maximum velocity, um, along with 
a, a hamstring specific isometric exercise can actually be quite significant in improving strength and also um, our muscle architecture as well. So we've got a couple of exercises there. We, we've used a few variations in, um, now we've got some evidence with a, a K-Box, the K-Box flywheel device now that we can use a, like a, a squat to hip hinge exercise that allows us to have some good eccentric strength improvements and, and architecture as well. So um, I think that those flywheel devices, whilst um, sometimes fairly cumbersome and again, create some considerations for implementing it with a squad of 40 players if you've only got one device, uh, they are quite useful. Even if you've got the old yo-yo leg curl, you can do the two up, one down intervention. Um, you do two legs on the way up and then one leg on the way down. That gives you that eccentric overload. It gives you that flywheel stimulus. And we, we also have some evidence that suggests that's quite good at improving our muscle architecture as well. So. There is a few ranges, there's a few specifics there that we can work around, but again, it comes down to how you actually apply that within the environment. We can say, okay, do these three sessions a week of these exercises, four sets of 10. It's easy enough with one or two guys, but if you have 40, then try and understand the limitations within that in your environment. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Josh, Ryan and Jack. So we start off part two discussing isometrics and their place when reducing the risk of hamstring injury, which that was with Ryan, but also moving into isometrics as a part of the rehabilitation process with Jack. Then we move into more exercise selection and um, high-speed running in the place of high-speed running in reducing hamstring injury risk, but also the rehab side of things. And then we get Josh back involved um, chatting about um, the prediction side of things. So really interesting part two coming up, which I sure you'll love. So just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. 
Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. So the next point that I want to make has been mentioned a couple of times by all, all three of you. And it's something that I spoke to Jack about a couple of weeks ago on the, on the, the podcast that we did um, together in terms of the rehab side of things. But isometric uh, exercises and the use of isometric exercises in the reduction of hamstring injury risk, not only the, the rehab, where does that fit? Where can that fit, Ryan? And why would people choose that, um, not necessarily over, but instead of um, an eccentric uh, focused exercise. I do. I just. I'm conscious that everyone loves to put themselves in a in a specific camp, but um, it'd be good to get a, a bit of an insight into um, how uh, isometric exercises affect some of the stuff that we've already talked about in terms of the eccentric side. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, I think both kind of contraction modes can live together in harmony. I don't, I don't think we need to be in one camp or the other. I think you can you can do eccentrics and isometrics, and you know the world's not going to end. So I'd be pretty confident in that fact. Well, it's not being related to Nostradamus. I believe we can actually do those things and, and get on. So um, I think the the consideration for the isometric world is that um, is that there's no real muscle tracking evidence to suggest that our fascicles undergo eccentric lengthening or just going to go lengthening during sprinting and that the theory is that all the lengthening we actually see in the muscle tendon unit is actually just slack being taken out the tendon and the muscle itself is just contracting isometrically to, to hold its shape. So in theory, everyone goes in the isometric camp, well, that means we should then just train isometrically to adapt to that isometric stimulus and as a result, have the ability to withstand that that injury. I think that you know we have no evidence to suggest either way. So why you know why throw it in the bin? I definitely think it has a, a place. But I think the evidence suggesting eccentric strength training and its beneficial adaptations and even its injury prevention uh, risk reduction uh, in the Nordic has has a good place in that program as well. But you know if you chuck in an eccentric exercise, you chuck in an isometric exercise and you sprint well, you do it regularly, and you overload it, then I think you're going to tick most of the key tenants to a, a good prevention program. I don't think you need to be in one camp or the other. I think, yeah, so we can we kind of do things together. And, you know, even if there is no evidence to say one does the other, or, you know, are we lengthening, are we isometrically contracting during sprinting? Is it tendon-specific adaptation that we're chasing from the heavier isometric work? I think if we do that stuff, we still run fast and we do that a couple of times a week, then I think we're going to be covering most of our bases as we can as we go. So just coming back to you, Jack, I know this is something that we discussed in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, like I mentioned, but in terms of um, the use of isometrics in a rehab setting, where, where, do they, where do they fit and are they, like like Ryan said, are they very complementary to the eccentric? You don't have to be in either camp. You can actually be in both. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's... Obviously, room for room for both, um, and I think 
you know, you're silly to think if it's it's one way, uh, one way or the other. There's certainly uh, certainly space for both contraction modes, that's for sure. Um, I suppose from a rehab point of view, in terms of isometric uh, exercise, one of the one of the things that for me is a little bit interesting is when you look at the traditional, I suppose, approaches to acute muscle injury rehabilitation in general. They generally follow those progression guide guidelines of starting with isometric exercises as your low level exercises, progressing those isometrics to generally short length isotonic, so concentric, eccentric exercises, and then introducing longer length and eccentrically biased exercises towards the end of rehabilitation. So that's what you know we've seen probably traditionally throughout the literature. Um, from not just an acute muscle injury point of view, but then specifically with hamstring injuries is where isometrics have kind of fit, I suppose. Um, in more recent times, the advocation for isometric training and rehab has probably been a little bit more centred around the, along the same lines as what Ryan touched on with the, um, the potential that there's no actual lengthening of the, the muscle during high-speed running or sprinting, um, and because of that, we should train isometrically. Um, you know, whether that's right or wrong, at this point in time, it's theoretical. Um, and I suppose in terms of basing your whole approach of rehab around isometric training, I would suggest is probably somewhat flawed, just as basing your whole approach around eccentric strength training is probably somewhat flawed as well. Um, there's certainly some more higher level isometric exercises that may have some benefit and certainly some transfer to potentially high speed running. Um, the biggest problem we have at the moment is we just don't have the evidence and that's where we need more research and, you know, more, just more good work from, uh, professional sport and collaboration with elite athletes and things like that to allow us to, to answer some of those questions. Um, but yeah, probably to come back to your question of where they traditionally fit in rehab it's probably been more from that progression point of view of starting with isos and then progressing along the line which is something that we probably um to some extent disagree with just because i don't think there's any point where you should be only doing one type of contraction mode um it makes more sense to me to be doing all types of contraction mode uh from the start right through rehabilitation but just at an appropriate intensity so in terms of then progressions and not just doing isometrics at the, at the start of the rehab. Where would and what kind of it'd be good to get some examples? I know you gave a few a couple of weeks ago, but it'd be great to revisit what kind of um, eccentric focused exercises would would be based at the start to be used to build alongside the isometrics for that rehab to, towards it and along that rehab process. Yeah, sure. So I think again, rather than thinking of eccentrics as something that's scary and that should only be done at the end stage of rehabilitation when we you know, don't have clinical signs and symptoms, I think we should just see it as another exercise and another form of intervention that's, um, I guess, a, a tool in your kit bag that you can call upon. Um, you know, Ryan and, and Josh as well have mentioned the, the potential benefits or the, the proven benefits of implementing that from an adaptation point of view in healthy populations, and we're now seeing more of that um, you know, in, in an injured population as well. Um, so in terms of some, I guess, examples, like, um, and I mentioned in, in the other podcast we did the other week and the protocol we implemented in our study where we had three exercises that we introduced right from the get-go in rehab. So we had a, a conventional hamstring bridge, so 45-degree um, hip knee flexion up and down, so concentric and eccentric exercise. We had a longer length exercise being the 45-degree hip extension uh, and then we had the eccentric sliding leg curl. 
um, which was kind of our sub-maximal eccentric only knee flexor movement. Now, we don't for a second think that they're the only three exercises you should be doing. They're just three examples. But I think the nice thing there is we've got um, we've got a couple of hip extension-based movements, one that's at a particularly long length, and then we also have uh, an eccentrically biased exercise for the knee flexors specifically, um, which we tend to think is pretty important as well. So if you can come up with a variation of an exercise that is um, to start off with in rehab, it is sub-maximal intensity, but ticks those boxes as far as contraction mode um, and I suppose joint angle or sorry, um, joint involvement, whether it be knee flexion um, or hip extension goes. If you're ticking those boxes, then I think that's fine. Um, and we can at times get caught up a little bit too much in the detail of what the actual exercise is and trying to find that magic exercise. I think even for the sanity of the athlete and in my case probably the sanity of the clinician working with the athlete, we want to have a bit of variety in there and some options that we can call upon and um, you know, make rehab a little bit interesting as well. So um, as long as we're ticking the boxes of you know having a stimulus that achieves some eccentric knee flexor, uh, bias movement, some long length hip extension movement. And, you know, if, if we think it's needed, then maybe some isometric uh, exercise as well. And, um, you know, there's this sort of uh, Bosch hold type exercises and, um, you know, variations on isometric hamstring bridging that are incorporated in rehabilitation. And, um, you know, it'd be nice to see some more and more research come out with those and um, to find out what the potential benefits um, may be for those exercises additional to exercises that are already pretty commonly implemented mm-hmm. one thing that i had a little chat about with a previous guest on the podcast was using isometric training and this is quite a little bit off topic actually but it'd be good to get your um your input and um, using isometric training in a youth population where and this obviously transfers to an older population as well who may have issues around um certain movements that they may have compensations and, and previous injuries that they're not able to do, but using isometrics as a way for um, basic force, force production when that force production isn't able to be delivered in more traditional um, concentric-based exercises. Is that something that you would consider in a, in a rehab setting, Jack? Is that something that you've um, had experience of? Yeah, it's, it's a good point, and I think um... – you know, from a prevention point of view, it's also something that does get implemented even in the elite population where, um, you know, there's potential fear of muscle soreness or, you know, just not wanting to elicit muscle soreness with an eccentric contraction, um, you know, whether it be in the weekly training cycle or, or whatever it might be. Um, isometrics can act as a stimulus to obviously promote force production without inducing, um, you know, that potential damage that we get from eccentric contractions. So there's certainly a place for it for it there. Um, I think there's a certain need as well, though, for education around um, muscle soreness and, um, you know, the fact that even educating patients, clients, athletes on things like the repeated bout effect and um, the fact that muscle soreness, yes, it's bad when you first experience a pretty decent bout of eccentric strength training. But what we've seen in quite a number of training studies, um, quite a number of training studies now is that the actual delayed onset muscle soreness, apart from those first couple of sessions, tends to reduce pretty quickly. And, um, you know, high load eccentric training is fairly well tolerated by, by a range of individuals, um, you know, once they've been exposed to it. Um, I do think that there, that doesn't discount the fact that there may be a place for the isometrics. And again, a lot of that might come more from some of the orthopedic rehab literature where 
isometric training might be advocated for when we can't actually change joint position as much. So if you think about uh, post a total hip replacement or um, you know, knee arthroplasty, for example, where you may have restrictions on joint range of motion for certain periods of time, then obviously we can't be moving through full range of motion with isotonic exercises. So therefore isometrics uh, can act as a good way of keeping a stimulus to the muscle um, and the muscular tendinous unit whilst we can't change the, the joint angle. So um, there might be a time in, in hamstring strain injury rehabilitation where uh, if range of motion is severely impaired uh, and we're not able to um, put the muscle through, um, particularly long muscle length, we might start with some shorter length isometric contractions. And again, as I said, that's what's often advocated for in, in the literature. I suppose what maybe conflicts with that a little bit is some of the data that we've started to collect and others have also sort of reported where we may be seeing discrepancies in range of motion and even pain during range of motion testing, but that doesn't necessarily translate to pain or inability to perform exercises where the muscle might be lengthening. So, um, you know, we've got plenty of examples of um, athletes who had pain and restricted range of motion on range of motion testing, but then when they're actively contracting the muscle and undergoing a lengthening contraction, for example, or even a shortening contraction, um, they were pain-free or had less pain, um, they were able to perform that exercise um, you know, with no problem. So, again, it just comes back to that thing of a case-by-case approach and, and education for the for the athlete as to the, the benefits of different types of exercise and also, you know, what's going to happen if you perform this exercise, it might lead to a bit of muscle soreness and the fact that maybe that's okay. Um and maybe not to be too fearful of it. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I'm just going to, I'll come back to some um, some chat around the running progressions as well, Jack, in, in terms of the rehab, but I'd just like to come back to Ryan. And I feel like I'm leaving Josh out for some reason. So Josh, get involved, get involved. He's full of sleep, bro. I'm just letting um, the two, two absolute experts handle, handle things here. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Ryan, in terms of the... Um, sprint exposures for reducing hamstring injury risk. And this is obviously a, a very hot topic and something that seems to have been um, ha- ha- widely adopted in terms of the, the practice that um, that people undertake in terms, in terms of the people that I, I've spoken to anyway. Is there any recommendations from your point of view in terms of how many exposures people should be having per week? Um, I know people are doing top-ups after games for people that are training that don't have um, that don't get that based on their GPS GPS uh, measures and things. But from a research point of view and from a practical point of view, given that you work at um, uh, an, an A-League club, what are the recommendations that you would have in terms of sprint exposures for reducing hamstring injury risk? So I think, I think um, we're, we're fortunate enough in Australia that most, if not all, of our sports don't really have less than a four or five-day turnaround. So... To be able to, to plan and program any kind of exposures is, is quite uh, fortuitous here. We we're in a lucky situation where um, I, I don't envy those in the English Championship or in the Premier League who have you know, up to three games within seven days. So being able to implement specific stimulus interventions in those periods become a bit more tricky. Um, I don't think there's a, a magic number around how many you need to do it. I think I might let Josh comment on this in a sec, but I think for us it's it's more so how you get there, maintaining uh, a good intensity of those efforts and obviously then periodising that across 
a certain period. I know with us, with some of the research we've done with some AFL clubs, we've looked at trying to implement at least um, 10 max velocity efforts in a week. Now, they're, 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 we're lucky enough with the AFL guys, they're, they're fairly competitive, so they race each other. And you, you know, we just say race each other. We don't put them in velocity bands. We just say, okay, you got to do this as part of your warm-up. You've got to hit a, you know, across this 40 metres. You've got to hit max at some point. And they're averaging around about 95% of their max velocity. Now, obviously, that's not possible to do every day of the week. And uh, how you get there is the big question. So I think um, whilst there's no magic how much do we prescribe, I think, Josh, I'll, I'll, I'll toss to you here, is just how do we actually – balance the, the quality of high-intensity work versus actually trying to get there over a certain period of time. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Ryan. And <clears throat> I think it's also sort of important to consider that um, sort of high-speed running distances have uh, – sort of increasing high-speed running distances has been associated with the risk of injury, um, but also exposure to, to high-speed running and sort of those – those high-intensity efforts has also been shown to reduce the risk of hamstring injury. Um, so I think it's sort of a bit of a balancing act. And as Brian said, there's really no magic numbers. There's some work from Marcus Colby and colleagues over on the West Coast of Australia. Um, I think they're sort of looking at, at some of this work. Um, but, yeah, we're really at the point where, where there is no magic numbers. I think it's quite controversial at the moment, the acute to chronic workload ratio, um, but I think it just comes down or comes back to that that really simple concept of maintaining an appropriate balance, um, or, or not uh, not going overboard in terms of um, how much high speed running you're prescribing, uh, sort of week to week. Uh, again, I, I also think it's important to consider that you know one of the biggest sort of or the biggest stimulus that we have week to week actually occurs within a match. Um, so we're getting exposure to those high-speed running distances and those high-intensity efforts um, within a match as well. So that's something that we need to consider as well. So I really think setting setting that number and saying you need to hit um, sort of you know eight to ten high-intensity efforts throughout a week um, that's not going to work. I think we need to be a little bit more flexible with that. Cool. How would we, in terms of being flexible with that, how how would you do that in practice? Is that is that based on how many you would um, the number in games? How would a practitioner be able to navigate that flexibility? I know that's easier said than done. Yeah, as I said, I think it just comes back to sort of really simple um, sort of concepts such as progressive overload. Um, I don't think you want to throw uh, too much at a particular athlete because obviously they might not be able to handle that and they might break. But obviously, you don't want them to be doing less. Um, than, than what they have done in the past. Um, so I think it really comes back to sort of looking at your match data, looking at what a match demands of a particular athlete and making sure that they're capable of doing, um, you know, a, a little bit more than that, if that makes sense. So we always want to be over-prepared rather than under-prepared. But in terms of the, the benefits that, exposure to, to high-intensity efforts has. I think we really need more research regarding the um, sort of the, the physiological mechanisms as to why that might be beneficial, why it might reduce the risk of injury or why it might um, sort of increase the risk of injury. Um, so I think Ryan's probably a good person to, to chat about some of that, sort of the, the physiological underpinnings of why high-speed running might increase or decrease 
um, the risk of hamstring strain injury. But I think that's something, it's a really important consideration that um, probably needs a little bit more attention in, in research. I think, I think following on from Josh's point there is that um, whilst there's no you know, magical kind of number and you know, it's very hard and you've got a plan and you, know, you hope for the player to get X amount during a game. If you don't get that, then you've got to, you actually get them the following week. I find that you know, whether you're planning forward and you're looking at making sure that you plan for the worst, I think that those scenarios, if you're looking at your, you know, your periodization and, and your volumes across a certain period of time, you're looking forward and you know, you're being a diligent coach and you're planning on how much you're doing over the next four weeks and so on and so forth with your overload and going, let's plan for the worst, let's plan they don't play a minute this weekend, um, they don't play a minute on Wednesday in the cup match, so how do we actually make sure they get those stimulus? So... Um, I think that's a big part because if you don't plan for the worst at some point, so you'll just end up chasing your tail and having guys who just don't get that stimulus or that exposure in the long run. And then when you try and do, do it, you know, it's four weeks later, they haven't had it, the whole acute to chronic conversation comes up again and then that, that's when we have to be a bit more concerned. Coming back to you, Jack, in terms of building someone back up to a point where they can be exposed to these kind of losses as, as the two guys have chatted about. Just want to talk to us a little bit about your your progressions in building someone back up to that scenario on the, on the field. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, we obviously talked about it uh, the other week as well in terms of um, the way to perhaps go about progressing someone through a running protocol and rehabilitation. And you know, the approach that we use, we don't certainly think is necessarily the best or um, the gold standard at all, but you know, we like to think it's a relatively straightforward approach um, and pragmatic approach in terms of exposing them to, to running when they can tolerate it um, and progressing them when they can tolerate it. Um, I think, as you sort of touched on in, in the other podcast, with athletes tend to progress pretty quickly through running progressions from the start of rehabilitation up to sort of that 70 to 80% of their, their maximum velocity um, because the hamstrings are placed under a great deal of stress at those um, lower sort of bands of speed. So um, they can get a false sense of security in terms of how well they're progressing throughout their rehabilitation um, because at the end of the day, the, the main activity that an athlete is limited by when they have a hamstring injury and that they probably need to get back to is high-speed running. So um, when they see that they're you know maybe back at 70%, intuitively they're going to think, okay, well, I'm 70% of my way through my rehabilitation, but... Um, we know that that's probably very rarely the case. Um, and a lot of the time, someone may be able to run at 70% well within the first week of rehabilitation, um, but the injury may take two, three, four, potentially even longer weeks to uh, actually get back onto the field. So I think it's just an awareness that, that those latter stages of um, running progressions will be a little bit slower um, as a general rule of thumb um, due to the increased demands placed on the, the injured hamstring muscle, most commonly the biceps femoris longhead. It's then about how do you go or how do you go about integrating that athlete into their team training and obviously getting them back back to play and back onto the back onto the park. And that's not a difficult sorry, it is a difficult, it's not an easy um, question to answer. Um, and it's going to come back to the sport that the athlete's undertaking and a decision making process that needs to be um, obviously have the involvement of a lot of different people, the athlete and the coach included. Um, at the forefront, really. So I think 
you need to obviously then be dealing with, if you're in an elite sport environment, your sports science staff and um, those who are looking after their end-stage conditioning and their return to running programs once they're back in training, yeah, talking with the coaches and explaining that, that you might need to modify their workloads even in training in the initial stages and the exposures to high-speed running as an example. Um, and I think making sure that there's some consideration for the sort of, as Ryan mentioned, the kind of worst-case scenario that they may need to uh, be able to deal with in terms of a game situation. Um, but in the reality of not just professional sport but recreational sport or day-to-day life, I think the decision around returning to sport has to be primarily that of the athlete and they may have to accept some level of injury risk when they go back to sport Um, and a hamstring injury is a classic example of that because we know that if we have a lower exposure to high-speed running throughout the rehabilitation period, we're more likely to get re-injured. So therefore, um, we have to take that into account, but it doesn't mean that every single time we're going to make sure that they hit you know, a certain number of um, running exposures because there might be other factors such as game importance, time of the season, you know, career longevity that actually supersede the need for uh, the decision to be governed completely by, um, you know, an acute to chronic workload metric, for example. So, um, yeah, it's a challenging one and it it takes the involvement of a lot of people um, to get to that decision. But at the end of the day, the more exposure you have to high-speed running and rehabilitation, if we're talking about that as the context, the better um, from a obviously re-injury risk reduction but also making the athlete more robust um, and in reality ready to perform as well. Excellent. So I'm going to come back to you, Jack, and then uh, Ryan and uh, and Josh to finish off. But in terms of the research that's coming out from from your and Jack, um, just want to give a bit of an overview of that so people can look out for it and um, and and get it when it when it when it comes out. Yeah, sure. So I suppose from from my point of view, it's um, probably some things that are coming out just from the the last couple of studies from my, my PhD um, and I mentioned last week the process can be a little bit slow at times in terms of publishing some of this research but um, yeah our, our main uh, randomised control trial comparing pain-free and pain threshold rehabilitation um, has been accepted for publication in the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy so fingers crossed that'll be online any day now and um, yeah accessible for people um, and yeah just some, some other work that we're currently looking at in terms of um, you know, some future rehabilitation studies and investigating, I suppose, um, different approaches to, to rehabilitation and looking at bilateral and unilateral exercises as well as, you know, exposure to high-speed running throughout rehabilitation and, um, you know, what are, what's the additional effect of exercise um, apart from just running itself in terms of rehab. So that's just some of the things that I suppose that I'm working on, but um, as a group there's always plenty of stuff going on and, um, Ryan's always in the thick of it, so I'm sure Ryan can can fill you in on some of the stuff that uh, that the group's doing. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I guess. Sorry, mate, I was just cutting you off there because Josh uh, right, and Jack just threw me out of the bus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, we we have a fair bit. You know, obviously Jack's the the rehab guru for us, so we rely on him to help us all when we get injured. But we're we're, we're also looking at. Um, a range of studies now just kind of building on the exercise selection side of things in healthy people and, and trying to, one, do those interventions in elite populations. So we've got a couple of those papers and projects going to see if we can actually make some meaningful changes in 
you know, people that are pretty close to their ceiling. Um, also trying to just build on some of our activation um, stuff. And I think one thing that we've noticed is lacking a lot is the isometric side of things. We spoke about the adaptation from training and rehab, but a lot of the, a lot of our work, work is kind of grounded by activation profiling. So now for us is trying to build um, some evidence behind that. So there's a bit of work we're doing at the moment, trying to look at you know, if we do a certain type of isometric exercise, um, do we have an X kind of response and activation? And, and that's going to be a good part for us moving forward. And then, okay, if it's useful, can we actually implement that in a, in a kind of prevention-based program? Excellent. And we're going to finish off with Josh, where we started. Over to you, Josh. What's what's on the horizon? Yeah, so obviously, um, yeah, as I said, two years into my PhD, so we've got some uh, a fair bit of work in the pipeline at the moment, which hopefully will be published soon. I need it to be published uh, uh, if I'm going to finish my PhD. But yeah, we sort of um, we we have a narrative review. Sort of, um, hopefully, it's about to be published again. Coming back to that point regarding education in terms of the interpretation of um, different statistics that are commonly reported. Um, when it comes to injury risk. So I'm hoping that that will be a really useful resource for um, practitioners. But again, some of the more, um, some of the other research that's sort of coming out of my PhD is really looking at, um, again, that data that we routinely collect uh, in a team sport environment um, and how some of the variables that we may look at, such as a couple of different strength and power metrics how they actually moderate the impact of workload on injury risk. Um, and, you know, I think it's really important uh, that we start looking at how different individuals respond to given workloads in terms of their, their wellness um, and, you know, and their injury risk um, and what factors are actually responsible for those different individual responses. Um, so, yeah, I'm currently in the process of, uh, do, doing a lot of coding, sitting in front of the uh, the computer, spending a lot of time in R, doing a lot of coding and um, pulling all the data together and doing a bit of writing. So hopefully some of that should be published quite soon. Excellent. So just last and last and final thing, where can um, where can people keep in touch with you and your work, Josh? And if people have got any questions, uh, where do they need to be directed? Um, yeah, I think Twitter's probably the the best place. I think my Twitter handle is Joshua underscore. Oh, sorry, Ryan's right. just fallen into a spot. <laughs> Someone's <laughs> taking a dive. Yeah, um, yeah, probably probably Twitter direct message through Twitter. Otherwise, um, yeah, email as well. If people, yeah, if they just find uh, some of our papers, um, and, and I'm sure my emails on a couple of those papers, but. Yeah, as I said, I, I tw- I'm, I'm on Twitter quite regularly, just like everyone else, really. So, yeah, Twitter handle is at uh, Joshua underscore Ruddy. So, yeah. I think in, in response to that one, Rob, uh, most of us at the university we work at um, have basically the same email address. It's our name um, at acu.edu, so joshua.ruddy at acu.edu.au, jack.hickey at acu.edu.au. So we're normally pretty responsive to if someone sends us an email that's in good faith, we're happy to have a chat and help them out along the way. Excellent. And what's your um, what's your Twitter handles, Ryan and Jack? 
I'll leave it to Jack first. You know, <laughs> they're they're just checking, Rob. I think. Uh, <laughs> was that a delay tactic? That was a delay tactic from Ryan, wasn't it? Uh, mine's at Ryan underscore Timmons. So just like Josh's, but with a better name. Uh, yeah, <laughs> mine's Jack Hickey 89, Rob. So, um, yeah, Twitter's a good place to, to get in touch with, as we said. But um, probably sometimes the limitations with Twitter is obviously, um, unless it's a direct message, you're obviously limited by the character count as well so um yeah it, email might be might be a way to get in touch but um yeah we're, we're always all happy to chat and um share ideas with people and i think that um simulates good and interesting conversation for, for us as well and certainly guides research which um yeah definitely helps the better quality excellent well thank you very much guys really appreciate you uh Getting together in a room and 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 recording this podcast after uh, after a couple of weeks, couple of weeks of planning. So thank you very much. Not a problem. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having us, Rob. Great chat, guys. Thanks for tuning in to episode 248 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So big thanks to Josh, Ryan and Jack for coming on this episode today and discussing all things hamstring injuries. So I'm looking to do this every month. So I've got a couple lined up over the next couple of months and looking to continue that. So if there's any specific topics that people want covered and the practitioners uh, that may fit that bill to, to go in that um, in that slot, so it's three per episode, I'd really appreciate any feedback that anyone's got. So also big thanks to I Measure You, Hawking Dynamics, Fatigue Science and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. So I hope you enjoyed the chat with these guys and I will chat to you next week.